0: Human Nature and Conduct by John Dewey. Part 1, Section 1 Habits as Social Functions and Arts, Social Complicity, Subjective Factors. This LibriVox recording, read by William Jones, is in the public domain. Habits may be profitably compared to physiological functions, like breathing, digesting. The latter are to be sure, involuntary, while habits are acquired. But important as is this difference, for many purposes it should not conceal the fact that habits are like functions in many respects, and especially in requiring the cooperation of organism and environment. Breathing is an affair of the air as truly as of the lungs. Digesting, an affair of food as truly as of tissues of the stomach. Seeing involves light just as certainly as it does the eye and optic nerve. Walking implicates the ground as well as the legs. Speech demands physical air and human companionship and audience as well as vocal organs. We may shift from the biological to the mathematical use of the word function and say that natural operations like breathing and digesting acquired ones like speech and honesty Are functions of the surroundings, as truly as of the person. They are things done by the environment, by means of organic structures or acquired dispositions. The same air that under certain conditions ruffles the pool, or wrecks buildings, under other conditions purifies the blood and conveys thought. The outcome depends upon what air acts upon, the social environment, Acts through native impulses and speech, and moral habitudes manifest themselves. There are specific good reasons for the usual attribution of acts to the person from whom they immediately proceed. But to convert this special reference into a belief of exclusive ownership is as misleading as to suppose that breathing and digesting are complete within the human body. To get a rational basis for moral discussion, we must begin with recognizing that functions and habits are ways of using and incorporating the environment in which the latter has its say as surely as the former. We may borrow words from a context less technical than that of biology and convey the same idea by saying that habits are arts. They involve skill of sensory and motor organs, cunning or craft, and objective materials. They assimilate objective energies and eventuate in command of environment. They require order, discipline, and manifest technique. They have a beginning, middle, and end. Each stage marks progress in dealing with materials and tools, advance in converting material to active use. We should laugh at anyone who said that he was master of stone-working and that the art was cooped up within himself and in no wise dependent upon support from objects and assistance from tools in morals we are however quite accustomed to such a fatuity moral dispositions are thought of as belonging exclusively to a self the self is thereby isolated from natural and social surroundings a whole school of morals flourishes upon capital drawn from restricting morals to character and then separating character from conduct motives from actual deeds recognition of the analogy of moral action with functions and arts uproots the causes which have made morals subjective and individualistic it brings morals to earth and if they still aspire to heaven it is to the heavens of the earth not to another world honesty Chastity, malice, peevishness, courage, triviality, industry, irresponsibility, are not private possessions of a person. They are working adaptations of personal capacities with environing forces. All virtues and vices are habits which incorporate objective forces. They are interactions of elements contributed by the makeup of an individual with elements supplied by the outdoor world. They can be studied as objectively as physiological functions, and they can be modified by change of either personal or social elements. If an individual were alone in the world, he would form his habits, assuming the impossible, namely that he would be able to form them, in a moral vacuum. They would belong to him alone, or to him only in reference to physical forces. Responsibility and virtue would be his alone. But since habits involve the support of environing conditions, a society or some specific group of fellow men is always accessory before and after the fact. Some activity proceeds from men, and it sets up reactions in the surroundings. Others approve, disapprove, protest, encourage, share, and resist. Even letting a man alone is a definite response. Envy, admiration, and imitation are complicities. Neutrality is non-existent. Conduct is always shared. This is the difference between it and a physiological process. It is not an ethical ought that conduct should be social. It is social, whether bad or good. Washing one's hands of the guilt of others is a way of sharing guilt, so far as it encourages in others a vicious way of action. Non-resistance to evil, which takes the form of paying no attention to it, is a way of promoting it. The desire of an individual to keep his own conscience stainless by standing aloof from badness may be a sure means of causing evil and thus creating personal responsibility for it. Yet there are circumstances in which passive resistance may be the most effective form of nullification of wrong action, or in which heaping coals of fire on the evildoer may be the most effective way of transforming conduct. To sentimentalize over a criminal, to forgive because of a glow of feeling, is to incur liability for production of criminals. But to suppose that infliction of retributive suffering suffices, without reference to concrete consequences, is to leave untouched old causes of criminality and to create new ones by fostering revenge and brutality. The Abstract Theory of Justice which demands the vindication of law irrespective of instruction and reform of the wrongdoer is as much a refusal to recognize responsibility as is the sentimental gush which makes a suffering victim out of a criminal courses of action which put the blame exclusively on a person as if his evil will were the sole cause of wrongdoing and those which condone offense on account of the share of social conditions in producing bad disposition, are equally ways of making an unreal separation of man from his surroundings, mind from the world. Causes for an act always exist, but causes are not excuses. Questions of causation are physical, not moral, except when they concern future consequences. It is, as causes of future actions, that excuses and accusations alike must be considered. At present, we give way to resentful passion, then rationalize our surrender by calling it a vindication of justice. Our entire tradition regarding punitive justice tends to prevent recognition of social partnership in producing crime. It falls in with a belief in metaphysical free will. By killing an evildoer, or shutting him up behind stone walls, we are enabled to forget both him and our part in creating him. Society excuses itself by laying the blame on the criminal. He retorts by putting the blame on bad early surroundings, temptations of others, lack of opportunities, and the persecutions of officers of the law. Both are right except in the wholesale character of their recriminations. But the effect on both sides is to throw the whole matter back into antecedent causation a method which refuses to bring the matter to truly moral judgment. For morals has to do with acts still within our control, acts still to be performed. No amount of guilt on the part of the evildoer absolves us from responsibility for the consequences upon him and others of our way of treating him, or from our continuing responsibility for the conditions under which persons develop perverse habits. We need to discriminate between the physical and the moral question. The former concerns what has happened and how it happened. To consider this question is indispensable to morals. Without an answer to it, we cannot tell what forces are at work, nor how to direct our actions so as to improve conditions. Until we know the conditions which have helped form the characters we approve and disapprove, our efforts to create the one and do away with the other will be blind and halting but the moral issue concerns the future. It is prospective. To content ourselves with pronouncing judgments of merit and demerit without reference to the fact that our judgments are themselves facts which have consequences, and that their value depends upon their consequences, is complacently to dodge the moral issue, perhaps even to indulge ourselves in pleasurable passion, just as the person we condemn once indulged himself. The moral problem is that of modifying the factors which now influence future results to change the working character or will of an other we have to alter objective conditions which enter into his habits our own schemes of judgment of assigning blame and praise of awarding punishment and honor are part of these conditions in practical life there are many recognitions of the part played by social factors in generating personal traits One of them is our habit of making social classifications. We attribute distinctive characteristics to rich and poor, slum-dweller and captain of industry, rustic and suburbanite officials, politicians, professors, to members of races, sets, and parties. These judgments are usually too coarse to be of much use, but they show our practical awareness that personal traits are functions of social situations. When we generalize this perception and act upon it intelligently, we are committed by it to recognize that we change character from worse to better only by changing conditions among which, once more, are our own ways of dealing with the one we judge. We cannot change habit directly that notion is magic but we can change it indirectly by modifying conditions by an intelligent selecting and weighing of the objects which engage attention and which influence the fulfillment of desires a savage can travel after a fashion in a jungle civilized activity is too complex to be carried on without smoothed roads it requires signals and junction points traffic authorities, and means of easy and rapid transportation. It demands a congenial, antecedently prepared environment. Without it, civilization would relapse into barbarism, in spite of the best of subjective intention and internal good disposition. The eternal dignity of labor and art lies in their effecting that permanent reshaping of environment, which is the substantial foundation of future security and progress. Individuals flourish and wither away like grass of the fields, but the fruits of their work endure and make possible the development of further activities having fuller significance. It is of grace, and not of ourselves, that we lead civilized lives. There is sound sense in the old pagan notion that gratitude is the root of all virtue. Loyalty to whatever in the established environment makes a life of excellence possible is the beginning of all progress. The best we can accomplish for posterity is to transmit unimpaired and with some increment of meaning the environment that makes it possible to maintain the habits of decent and refined life. Our individual habits are links in forming the endless chain of humanity. Their significance depends upon environment inherited from our forerunners, and it is enhanced as we foresee the fruits of our labors in the world which our successors live for however much has been done there always remains more to do we can retain and transmit our own heritage only by constant remaking of our own environment piety to the past is not for its own sake nor for the sake of the past but for the sake of a present so secure and enriched that it will create a yet better future individuals with their exhortations their preachings and scoldings their inner aspirations and sentiments have disappeared but their habits endure because these habits incorporate objective conditions in themselves so will it be with our activities we may desire abolition of war industrial justice greater equality of opportunity for all but no amount of preaching goodwill or of the golden rule or cultivation of sentiments of love and equity will accomplish the results there must be change in objective arrangements and institutions we must work on the environment, not merely on the hearts of men. To think otherwise is to suppose that flowers can be raised in a desert or motor cars run in a jungle. Both things can happen, and without a miracle, but only by first changing the jungle and desert. Yet the distinctively personal or subjective factors inhabit count. Taste for flowers may be the initial step in building reservoirs and irrigation canals. The stimulation of desire and effort is one preliminary to the change of surroundings. While personal exhortation, advice, and instruction is a feeble stimulus compared with that which steadily proceeds from the impersonal forces and depersonalized habitudes of the environment, yet they may start the latter going. Taste, appreciation, and effort always spring from some accomplished objective situation. They have objective support. They represent the liberation of something formerly accomplished so that it is useful in further operation. A genuine appreciation of the beauty of flowers is not generated within a self-enclosed consciousness. It reflects a world in which beautiful flowers have already grown and been enjoyed. Taste and desire represent a prior objective fact recurring in action to secure perpetuation and extension desire for flowers comes after actual enjoyment of flowers but it comes before the work that makes the desert blossom it comes before cultivation of plants every ideal is preceded by an actuality but the ideal is more than a repetition and inner image of the actual it projects in a secure and wider and fuller form some good which has been previously experienced in a precarious accidental fleeting way end of part one section one habits as social functions